All right, let me read to you now from the text for the teaching. James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He Himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear Slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. You may be seated. Verses 1 through 8, I remind you, are the thesis of the book. It lays out for us an outline of the key topics that will be addressed throughout the book. And we're going to be continuing now in the latter half of the first chapter. Um, So we're going to be looking at verses 12, hopefully through 27. We talked last time about 12 through 20 and how that was section C of the chiasm. And so. I want to um, re-review some of that here because I think it's a very important passage that, again, often gets misunderstood. So let me, let me re-emphasize a few things here now. So page two, 
Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay, so that word endures is the same word that was patience earlier on. We saw it up at verse 3 and verse 4. And so this idea of, of enduring or patience, right? Look, look at the footnote. Okay, this word, look at, at, at footnote, it's two at the bottom. And so I have, it's hypomene or mone. You see it with different endings because it's being used differently throughout. But its basic structure is hypo, which means under, and meno, which means to abide, so to abide under, to endure under. So endurance is the sort of basic idea there. And patience is a good translation, but this idea of how are we able to endure, it's because of the strength that God gives us, the fortitude that he gives us, the stability of soul as opposed to being blown about by every wind of doctrine. There's a stability of soul, and that comes from knowledge. It, becomes, it comes from the knowledge of the truth. So we are talking about resisting doubting by having knowledge, by right? being able to give a defense of the hope that we have, that gives you strength. So remember, apologetics is first and foremost for you. And it helps you to have stability. So then, verse 13, there's this desire when bad things happen to us and also when we have evil desires in us. Because we know that God controls everything, we want to take that and say, I'm being tempted by God, not just in the sense that God causes everything, but the desire is to make God the responsible cause, to make him blameworthy, to justify ourselves and to condemn God. And what we're called to do is to not say that. We're called to condemn ourselves as breakers of the law and to justify God as righteous. right? And that is the humility that comes when God plants wisdom in our souls and causes us to see that we need justification by a gracious God, not by our own works, but by the works of another. So, verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. So there it's talking about how God is not tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And there it's talking about the idea of God not being the responsible cause of temptation. It's not denying that God is the efficient cause of everything. He does as He pleases in the heavens, in the earth, and in the seas. He, all, he does all that He pleases. And everything He pleases, He does. There is nothing apart from what God has willed. So it's not a denial of the sovereignty of God over everything. It's a denial that God is the responsible cause. Verse 14, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. There, that's the explanation that your own desires are a part of you. And it comes from unbelief. When you wrongly desire something, when you have a disordered desire, that disordered desire comes from unbelief. You're believing falsehood. You're valuing something more highly than you ought. And you're valuing God more lowly than you ought. Every time we sin, we are valuing something above God. Every time we sin, we are valuing something above God. Verse 15, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So that's in contrast to the crown of life. The crown of life versus death. So God does not cause our sorry God does cause our evil desires and our evil desires draw us away and entice us to sin for his good purposes right he has a plan for all things that are evil rather than condemn God and justify self we should justify God and condemn self this allows us to focus on overcoming sin not blaming God okay, page 3 remember last time we talked about the ambiguity of tempting right we can talk about temptation as an internal, uh, sorry, we, we can talk about temptation as B, an intentional effort by one person to cause evil desire in another person. We can talk about temptation as being an external object, right? So like this thing is a temptation to me. 
we can talk about temptation as an internal desire. So I am tempted, right? I have this evil desire. God does not have D. He has no evil desires. And God does plan external objects that are causes of temptation, that are occasions for temptation. And God does cause the changing of men's hearts. So the people who are having evil desires, God has predestined that. And God and people who seek to lay traps for others in order to try to tempt other people, God predestines that. And God is not counted as one who sins by tempting because he's above the law. So, E, the desire to say that God tempted me, that James is addressing, is not the desire to acknowledge God's predestination of all things. This is not a pious acknowledging of God's sovereignty. This is an impious effort to lay blame on God. James is addressing the desire to twist the doctrine of God's sovereignty as a means of escaping responsibility. And remember Paul did the exact same thing in Romans 9? Rebuked the exact same thing. So Romans 9 is a longer explanation. James 1 here is a very brief explanation, and he's kind of just rebuking swiftly. Romans 9 is a longer explanation, giving the defense of the position of God not being the responsible cause of sin. Now, G. Clarifying points to avoid shifting responsibility for sin to God without denying causation of sin to God. So let's define a cause. An effectual cause is a thing that necessarily results in a particular effect. A cause always results in an effect. An effect is caused by a cause. God's decree necessarily results in the fulfillment of that decree. If he decrees a thing, it happens. Whatever God pleases, that he does. So let's talk about responsibility, page four. Responsibility is being under authority that has the authority to call you to give a response, an account, an answer. Think about those words, responsibility, accountability, answerability. Right? If you're answerable, someone can make you give an answer. If you're accountable, someone can cause you to give an account. If you're responsible, someone can demand a response from you. This is put forward in the scriptures multiple times as, you know, no one can say to God, what have you done? Because there's nobody that has the authority to require him to answer. So the basic presuppositions and basis of responsibility are, one, a judge above the responsible party. And two, a standard by which to be judged over the responsible party. There are things that increase the basis of responsibility. And in Romans, you have Paul laying all of these out. Right? He says, well, you know, we're guilty in Adam as our covenant representative. That increases our responsibility. We have an awareness of a judge by innate categories written on the heart. We have an awareness of the violation of a standard by innate categories written on the heart. We have warnings about the judge from the oracles and ordinances of God if we're in the church. And we have warnings about the standard if we're in the church. We have the ordinances and oracles of God. So these are all things that Paul argues in Romans. Now, let's think about rational creatures. Rational creatures are responsible for sin. We have a judge who can call us to give an account. We have a law under which we are judged and held responsible. And we are aware that we have broken our own judgments of what is right and wrong. We contradict ourselves. We judge people for what we ourselves do. What we approve in ourselves one day, we fail to do the next. We are aware that we are breakers of the standard. God is not responsible for sin. There's no judge above him. There's no law above him. And he has no delusions that he has violated an imaginary standard. Page 5. 
We talked about the types of causes, so you have a deeper understanding of this. Okay, when we are talking about a responsible cause or the author of sin, we're talking about the meritorious cause. It's right there in the middle of the page. The meritorious cause. God is not the meritorious cause of sin. He's not the responsible cause of sin. He's not the author of sin. That's what those all, those all mean the same thing. So we talk about causes. Remember we talked about the solas being examples of these types of causes. And so you think about, you know, Scripture is the formal cause of salvation. Grace is the effectual cause of salvation. Faith is the instrumental cause of salvation. Christ's work is the meritorious cause of our salvation. And the ultimate cause of our salvation is God's glory. Okay, so I've tried to give for you here definitions of the causes as well as talking about what are these causes' relationship to sin. Okay, so the formal cause of sin is the law of God. Right? It's the form, it's the category that defines sin. It's the blueprint for righteousness versus sin. So that's the formal cause. It establishes a standard that we are judged by. Without a standard, there is no sin. Without the law, there is no knowledge of sin. So God's decree is the effectual cause of sin and suffering. An effectual cause is a thing that necessarily results in a particular effect. God's decree is the only effectual cause of anything. It's the only effectual cause of anything. And it's the effectual cause of all caused things. Okay, so God's not a caused thing. He didn't like cause himself. That's not what I'm saying. All caused things are things that were caused by the decree of God. So that's creatures. And then the things that happen in history are also caused by God. Human or angelic choice is the instrumental cause of sin and suffering. An instrumental cause is a second cause. That's how it's referred to in the confession. You talk about second causes. Um, it's, a, it's a legally binding cause when it's done by a rational agent. Uh, it's a cause that is a chain of causation wherein one cause in the chain is subordinated to another. So the instrumental cause of a trade might be a written contract with signatures or a verbal exchange of promises or an offer spoken and accepted by parties by the shaking of hands. Okay, now think about that in comparison to a meritorious cause. Right, there's the contract or the deal or the agreement versus the fulfilling of the terms. Okay, so you know, I might say, I'll give you a piece of silver for 20 bucks. Well, I offer that ticket. And at least now, market price. So that, if you accept that deal, right, I owe you an ounce of silver. You owe me 20 bucks. The agreement is the instrument by which that is formed. The handing you of the silver is a meritorious cause of you having to give me the 20 bucks. You giving me the 20 bucks is a meritorious cause of me having to hand you the piece of silver. The difference between meeting the terms versus forming the agreement. Okay, so sinning creatures are the meritorious cause of sin. The chargeable, responsible, accountable cause of sin. Only creatures are the authors of sin. So, a meritorious cause is the thing counted as ethically or legally responsible for the effect. In a trade, the fulfillment of the promises in a contract would be the meritorious cause whereby the other side of the deal is obligated to pay up. Meritorious causation is synonymous with responsibility, accountability, answerability. The responsible cause is the meritorious cause. In murder by a firearm, a gun is the instrumental cause of death, and a person is the responsible cause of death. So, God's glory is the ultimate cause of sin. An ultimate cause is the final goal, the highest reason, or the last objective to be accomplished in the chain in which the effect participates. And then we talked about occasions, right? occasions for things. Occasions are things that frequently, typically, ordinarily might relate to a particular result, but they don't necessarily result in a particular effect. So historical events and circumstances are occasions for sin and suffering. These occasions are means that are not causal in the technical or strict sense. 
All right, so my hope is, having gone over that a couple of times, that's clear. I tried to make the handout more clear, better, give you a little bit more, give you explicit definitions. So my hope is that that is something where you feel well-equipped to be able to address the problem of evil. Because it comes up frequently in the Scriptures, and James just dealt with it, and the effort to use the problem of evil to evade responsibility and that's a common response of creatures. So after that explanation, after that explanation about our responsibility, so back at verse 15, it says, Then when, we des- when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now page 6, verse 16, Do not be deceived. Right. So there's this this idea of get, get rid of the self-deception, get rid of the self-deception that makes it so that you blame God, get rid of the self-deception that causes you to misdefine what is good and what is evil. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He's hit two sides of a coin here. The first side is, don't shift the blame to God. Recognize that you're responsible for your sin. And the second side is, he's saying, and don't think too highly of yourself. All the gifts you have, all the good things you have, all the wisdom you have, all of it comes from God. It is a gift from God. These are two sides of humility. Recognizing that you are responsible for your sin and recognizing that God is the giver of good gifts. And so we are dependent upon Him and we have nothing of ourselves that is good. What we need to be worried about is our production of bad fruits like the wrath of man producing strife, danger, harm. And so if we have instead endurance, peaceableness, right? Think about endurance or peaceableness in contrast to the wrath of man. That patience, that endurance is a gift itself from God. So we are to resist self-deception, unbelief, and foolishness. We are to recognize that good gifts are from above, from the Father. And we need to recognize that the Father of lights... What are lights? Why, Why Father of lights? Light is used to point to reason, truth, the differentiation between things. Hey, you look at that throughout the scriptures. The ability to discern. And in the book of Ecclesiastes it says, he sees that one who is wise is better than a fool in the same way that light is better than darkness. How is that? It allows for the differentiation of things. The wise man knows the difference between good and evil. The fool does not. He doesn't know the difference between his right hand and his left or a boy and a girl. Those are the things that we have we have wisdom. We have differentiation. We have distinction of things. The ability to reason rightly. To see the truth of God for what it is. And to differentiate truth from falsehood. Reality from falsehood. Goodness from wickedness. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. He's pointing to the gift of wisdom. He's pointing to the gift of wisdom with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God doesn't change and His truth doesn't change. God is the truth. When we know the truth, we know God. He's revealed the truth. There is no variation in Him. There is no shadow of turning. There's not even a hint of change. And His truth gives us stability. You become like what you worship. So be careful what you worship. You become like what you worship. Do you want to be stable? Worship the God who has no shadow of turning. 
Verse 18. Now, this is an explanation. This is, this is, this is a pulling out of that. Right? Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above. He's the Father of lights. Now, look at verse 18. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Right? So there, the light that we have, He brought us forth by wisdom. He caused us to have life by His word. He gave us illumination by His sovereign Spirit. And so He gave us the good gift of faith, of wisdom. He gave us the second birth by His Word and Spirit. He will preserve our wisdom. And He will give more wisdom. Verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, Remember the context here. This gets quoted, and it's principally quoted to talk about in general life, listen to each other. Right? Be slow to speak and be slow to be angry. Sometimes it's applied to conflict resolution. And those are all good applications. But the principal meaning of the text, the sense of the text, is talking about being swift to hear the word of truth. And then when you're teaching, evaluate what you say. Be slow. One of the reasons I write an outline is to help me to evaluate what I'm saying. If you watch the process of typing this out, you would see a mighty great deal of deleting. So that process of being slow to speak, trying to figure out better ways to say, being careful about it, that is what we are called to do. And then a slowness in terms of anger or wrath. And that includes not only the whole of life, but also in teaching and in listening to teaching. I could say something, and it could make you mad real fast because you want to justify yourself. If I, if I point something out in the Word, right, you might go, what? The law of God doesn't require that. Be slow to become angry about that. At the same time, as a preacher, it's possible to use the pulpit to rail against people. You need to be slow to not do that. The pulpit is not a bully pulpit. It is not a tool to abuse power over other people. So there is an obligation to be careful about speech and to be careful about judging what is taught. And that's one of the reasons we have the opportunity for questions and comments and objections here because we start out with the idea of if you're asking a question, it should principally be, first, let me understand what you said. When you said such and such, did you mean X? Or why? Something else, right? Clarifying. So when there's something that's ambiguous, as opposed to assuming the worst interpretation, you seek to clarify it. Now, that clarification is great because it helps to avoid the ambiguity being taken wrongly by the listeners. On the other hand, if my response to your question about the clarification is you say, is it X, which is okay, or Y, which is heresy? And I say, oh, I meant Y. Then, objection, comment, Argumentation, right? that process, and that requires care and order for both people. Now, um, comments, we talk about comments. One of the things we use comments for is sometimes if I teach, I might miss something that's a glaring, obvious, and important part of what the text says. And the purpose of allowing comments is principally to allow for the idea of filling in a, a gap, a significant gap. It's an opportunity to stand in the gap, right? You see me, I'm up here, I'm building a wall, and there's eight feet just missing. And I keep going, and I go, isn't that a beautiful wall? Come and admire the wall with me. And you go, I, right, right there, right there in the middle, there's a gap. And I just want to fill it in with you real quick. Let's do this together. That's what the comments are for. Something missing there. So an example of that might be, if I say, you've heard it said, justification is not by works, and I tell you justification is by works, and I move on, you go, did you mean 
that we are justified before God by doing good works? Or did you mean that we're justified before God by Christ's good works? I go, yeah, the second one. You have filled in the gap and helped to avoid ambiguation and made it so that a false gospel is not standing and also not just charged me with heresy, but sought to resolve the problem. So that would be an example of a question that fills in the gap. Now, verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let's remember the righteousness of God. Verse 11. Not 11, sorry, not verse 11. Point 11, there at the bottom of page 6. Remember from Romans, we had Paul defining the righteousness of God in a bunch of ways. He kind of went through, and it's all these different places where he's talking about the righteousness of God. So we have the, the righteousness of God as a judge, the righteousness of God in the law, the righteousness of God imputed to the believer in justification, the righteousness of God imparted to the believer in sanctification, the righteousness of God in His plan of predestination of all things for His ends, by His means, at His initiation, and the righteousness of God on display in the rational service of the saints. The ones that are being emphasized in the book of James are B, D, and F. Revealed in the law, in sanctification, and in rational service. Because this book is focusing on a profession of faith being credible. And so it's about the need to grow in wisdom in order, by knowing the law, in order to display the rational service and to be useful to each other. That's the emphasis of the book. Now, the other types of the righteousness of God are hinted at. Right? God as judge has just been hinted at above. The imputation that is given to us as believers is explained, hinted at in the next verse. Listen to the next verse. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There's the doctrine of justification by faith alone in the book of James. The implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's not insufficient to save your souls. It's not the implanted word plus some set of obedience. It is the implanted word, period. It is able to save your souls. We also see the predestination of all things in this book, right? We just dealt with the tempting, and we dealt with the fact that he gives all good gifts, and, and so all those things. Those things are here. The, change, the, the lack of change in God, which makes it so that his plan doesn't change, right? Predestination is touched upon. But the three that I've bolded are the three that are emphasized in this book. I hope that makes sense. So, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So the wrath of man is wrath that comes from man. It's the wrath of the flesh. There is righteous anger. Righteous anger comes from the Holy Spirit. And it is not something that comes from the natural man. So verse 21. Here we are in part D of the chiasm. Okay, verses 21, I have there in the heading through verses 77. It doesn't go that far. It goes to 27. So, didn't delete enough today. Replace it. So, chapter 1, verses 21 to 27. Right and wrong responses to wisdom. This is talking about a credible profession versus a vain profession. Verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What a beautiful verse. So this therefore, therefore, remember, whenever you see therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Right? You need to go, what's the connection? Right? This, is a, this is a hermeneutical rhyme that I hope to plant into your mind and you can't escape it. Right? You see therefore and you're going, I need to see the argument. What's the argument? Therefore, okay, the prior verse was be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to wrath, because the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Lay aside what's there in the natural man, and instead receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
listening to the word of God in the scriptures, from the pulpit, in private counsel, whatever context. In listening to the word of God, then apply it. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Wickedness is to be displaced by the righteousness of God. And we're told in the book of James how to do that. You displace wickedness with the righteousness of God by displacing unbelief with belief in the word of God. Replacing foolishness with wisdom. These are the things that displace each other. And so there's a causal order there. This is a set of secondary causes. The primary cause of you putting aside wickedness and putting on the righteousness of God is the decree of God. What's the second cause? Putting off unbelief and putting on belief. That, when we want to put off wickedness, we seek wisdom. The implanted word is able to save your souls. It's able to justify you. It's also able to sanctify you. All of salvation is by the implanted word. Verse 22. We need to not settle in there, though. This is the same argument Paul was making in Romans, right? We don't just, we've been freed from sin. Why would we return to it? We're free men now. We're free men now. Why would we act like slaves? Be free. Do righteousness. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he is. Sorry, he was. And immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, of the work, sorry, of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So we are called to be doers of the word and doers of the work. Doers of the word, we do what the law of God commands. This is the blessed life. We are justified apart from the law in order that we might apply the law. We're called to not be hearers only. We are to hear which increases responsibility. And it increases blessing for application and curse for non-application. We talk about the idea of, of worshiping covenant renewal process. We get together, there's a renewal of covenant. One of the things that happens, we, set, we sang Psalm 119, for example, A. right, And, and in that, there's this, the song itself had swearing to obey God. Did you notice that? There's this talking to God, promising to God to obey His Word. That psalm is a recovenanting. And so, when we hear the Word, there's this increasing responsibility. When we take the Lord's Supper together, there's a recovenanting. When you hear the Word, you're hearing the covenant again. And so there is this recovenanting that occurs in worship. We're not to be hearers only. We should apply the Word. And there's a blessing that comes. Now, there's the danger of deceiving ourselves, self-deception. If you hear the word but do not apply it, you need to check yourself to see if you're actually understanding and if you believe. And you need to find the lie that you're believing that is keeping you from applying what the Scriptures teach. Look, we do what we believe to greater and lesser consistency. And the more self-aware and consistent we are with our beliefs, the more consistent our actions. So, if I believe the Word of God, like you start out as a Christian, you, just, you start out, you have a very little knowledge of the Word of God. And you're not really conscious of all of the ways that you've adopted beliefs from your flesh and the world and the doctrines of demons. And as you study the Word, and you become increasingly aware of the desires of the flesh, you become increasingly aware of the deception of the world, you become increasingly aware of the doctrines of demons from false religions, and you start to see that you need to have an antithesis an alternative that you believe and you have the word of God that you are believing as your object. And as you increase in that, you become more conscious or self-aware 
of these doctrines. And you become more aware of the things that contradict it. And so you're able to become more consistent. And that increasing consistency, that increasing consistency results in an increasing consistency of what you say and what you do. There's an increasing consistency of what you say and what you do. Integrity is a concern for consistency. It's the desire to root out contradictory thoughts, contradictory words, and contradictory actions. And to desire to be in line with the word that comes from he who has no shadow of turning. So we are to be not self-deceived. We are to seek out increasing consistency with the word of truth. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, I didn't get this quite as well until I gained a few years and a few pounds. When I walk away from a mirror, I am thinner and younger and a little bit faster. When I return to the mirror, a little surprise. Video cameras, more surprise. So, that right there, there is this self-deception, this self-flattery that you have. I don't have it. We have this self-deception... And in that self-deception, what happens is we forget what we've seen. When we read the law, we have conviction, and then we paper it over real fast and move on. What if you didn't paper it over? What if when that happened, you tried to grab hold of it? What if out of a concern for consistency, you sought to say, this is convicting. I need to write it down. I need to memorize it. I need to apply it. I need to talk with my close friends and faithful counselors about the fact that I need to grow in this. Notice also we have this idea of the word, the law, as a mirror here. The idea of the law of God as a mirror, a chain, and a lamp. Let's come straight out of Scripture. The, the three uses of the law. Talk about that more in a second. Now, verse 24, He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Notice this does not say, this one will receive the beatific status of being saved. He'll be blessed in what he does. He'll be useful. The law is called the law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty. Do you want liberty? There's a degree to which people are less zealous about liberty today than in the past. People were zealous for liberty. There's a zeal for the rights that you receive from God. People who are zealous for liberty and that fight for liberty typically do not get a good return on best investment for themselves in a temporal sense. It's a lot cheaper to just hand over your rights. But there's a concern for posterity and for the crown rights of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a good return on investment when we can think about it from the perspective of forever. But in the short term, fighting for rights is very difficult and very costly. The perfect law of liberty is the law of God. And that perfect law of liberty is overwhelmingly contained in the Old Testament. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not forgetful hearer a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. So God's law is a mirror. Let's talk about that. God's law is a mirror. The law of God gives you a knowledge of self. It shows you who you are. It shows you your guilt. It shows you 
that you are unholy, that you are unrighteous, that you are wicked. And it also gives you that, that knowledge in comparison to, or better, in contrast to, God. And so the law of God shows you who you are and shows you who God is as a righteous judge. And so the righteousness of God in himself is pointed to by the law. And so it shows us, the law shows us our need of salvation, that we are breakers of it, that we, if we've broken it in one part, we have broken the whole of it. And so as breakers of the law, if we see that in the mirror, we should realize we are ones who are in need of mercy. The law of God is a chain. It restrains sin. The law of God captured in constitutions restrains magistrates from tyranny. The law of God in church order restrains ecclesiastical officers from tyranny. And it prevents congregations from usurpation and disorder. The law of God in the household gives proper roles and proper rights and protects the household, which is a small corporate institution and easily abused by the church and the state. The law of God gives the individual restraints to avoid them harming others. It binds the conscience and prevents outbreaks of wickedness that might otherwise occur. The law of God gives the magistrate the sword to restrain evil. The law of God gives the church the keys to discipline unruly brethren. The law of God gives the rod to the householder that he might restrain his children and servants and prevent them from doing great wickedness and train them up in righteousness. The law of God gives the individual pangs of conscience that stop them and a fear of the judgment of men who speak also the standard of the word of God. In a well-ordered Christian society, even the unbelieving and wicked act better than most modern Christians because of the fact that they have social pressures that rein them in. That is the binding chain of the law of God. And for the man who is saved, for he who has received the implanted word, for the one who has been brought forth by the word of truth, from death to life, born again by the Spirit. For that man, the law of God is a lamp that distinguishes the path from the wilderness, the railway from that place where the train ought not to go. Trains do not function well off the rails. Hikers, whatever you might think, young men, do not do so well off the path. And what we find is that cars run better on roads. The law of God reveals the path to our feet. The lamp shows us the way that we can differentiate between the bramble and the pavement. It is a light. It is wisdom. It shows us the way of gratitude and good works that are lawful to be done. Now, we think specifically about the mirror use. We are to make the mirror useful. If we are justified, we are justified now to do righteousness out of gratitude. We should not forget what we were. We should not forget what we want to be. We were sinners. We want to be righteous. We should not forget that we've been saved. What were we saved from? The wrath of God and from the wickedness of sin. We were saved from sin which causes misery and curse. Why return? Forget what we're saved from and we return to it. Do not forget that we have been freed. If we're freed, we ought not to return to that slavery that we were in. We should act like free men. So this is how the law is the law of liberty. It shows us how to act like free men. And that freedom is a glorious liberty to do righteousness, 
We are to look to the law, to continue in it, to not be forgetful of it, but to be a doer. And when you do, when you apply, you remember better. When you do, when you apply, you remember better. Doing what the law commands, applying something you've read, helps you to remember it better than if you just said it three times in your head. Now, the law of liberty. If you are not familiar with chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, you are missing out. You're missing out. You should read it. It's on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And it teaches us about several things. One of the things it teaches us about is what's called Augustinian liberty. When Calvinists start talking about freedom of the will, it doesn't mean what most people think it means. The freedom of the will in the Bible and in systematic theology from Calvinists does not mean that everybody does things apart from the decree of God without any causation outside of themselves. What it means is that we have the ability to do what's good. That's Augustinian liberty. And if you read the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus is a book about Augustinian liberty. Let my people go and serve me in the wilderness. Take them out from slavery and let them be free to serve me. That freedom to serve God is Augustinian liberty. The ability to do what's right. The freedom to do what is right. That is Christian liberty. So when we think about this, it's very useful to remember the four states of man. And Thomas Boston wrote an excellent book on this. It's like more than 500 pages. Augustine managed to put it into four propositions. So, you know, pick your authors. The four propositions are essentially this. Think about man when he was created before the fall. He was made, and he was able to do what was right and able to sin. He could do either one. He was free, though, because he could do what was right. After the fall, man became a slave to sin, could do no righteousness, and could only sin continually. The Lord Jesus Christ frees us from that. He frees us. He gives us life. He takes us from our deadness and slavery. And what he does is he makes us alive and able to do what is right. But we also continue to sin. We're able to do what's right now. We do some things that are right. We have faith, which is spiritual life. And so that ability to do good works is a livingness. It's a freedom. So we are freed. And then the fourth state is the most free of all, and you have no freedom to do evil in it. The fourth state is the glorified state. The glorified state after you die and go to paradise, and magnified after you are resurrected, is the state of glorification where you can only do what is good continually, and you can do no wickedness. That is the most free state. That's Augustinian liberty. The ability to do what is good. And Exodus 20 is a great proof text. Sorry, not 20. Exodus 23, too, because it's the law of God. It's the Ten Commandments. But Exodus, the whole book, is a great proof text for Augustinian liberty. Somebody says, where, where do you find that in the Bible? Just hand in the book of Exodus. I just want to like, print out copies of the book of Exodus so I can just be like, here, yeah, here's that. Augustinian liberty, you want to read about it? Do that. So the book of Exodus is our book on liberty. So, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 20, does a great job of laying some of these things out more. We'll spend more time next week on liberty. Verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So, what's religion? The Greek word, threskia, is used to talk about external profession and external service. So what we're talking about here is the professed doctrine 
and the agreed upon standard of behavior. Okay, so we have covenanted together and we have a confessional document. We have the Westminster Confession, right? And so that's our, that's our covenanted profession. And we also have standard of behavior laid out for us in terms of we have the law of God in our catechisms laid out. And we also have a directory of public worship. So those are us having covenanted on rules of behavior that we agree to. That's our religion. It's a religio, which is a rule. A religio is a rule, and it's a rule of faith and practice. And you see that over and over again in the scriptures. Have one faith and one way of acting. One practice, one confession. You see this over and over and over again. Because that's what is being talked about here. The external profession and service. Useless religion speaks foolishly. We're to control our tongue. Confessions of faith are principally to make it easier for the congregation to judge a preacher for heresy. It's a lot easier when I'm preaching on the doctrine of justification for you to go to the chapter 11 of our confession and say, you know, our confession says this is about justification, and so we've all come into this, and we have the proof text from the Bible, and so it makes it a lot easier to prove that from the Bible, but what you taught was contrary to this. It's something that helps you to have power over officers. A confession makes it easier to hold teachers accountable. So if someone's teaching... And they speak foolishly. They need to learn to bridle their tongue. The scriptures are the thing you bind the tongue with. And confessions are documents where we've we've covenanted that we believe this is what the scriptures teach. Useless religion fails to free from self-deception. When you're not bridling your tongue, you're deceiving your own heart. If I teach you false doctrine, it's because I believe false doctrine. And so, what love does is it points out that self-deception. As I'm teaching you, I'm probably hitting self-deception you have in your hearts and trying to batter it down and replace it with the truth. And so that's the purpose of that teaching. So if we speak useless words, we have... Useless thoughts in our hearts, and that religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion, useful religion, before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So, those two things laid side by side. What we have here is religion that's pure and defiled, defined by God. Useful religion. This useful religion brings us to care more about who we are covenanted with than about those that we can get great value out of. A covenant child who has no father and a covenant woman who has no male covenant head They may seem like people who are easy to extort, easy to abuse, and easy to ignore. But true religion will cause you to invite them to dinner rather than the person that you think you can get more out of who's out of the covenant. There's a holiness of relationship there. And on the other side, it prevents us from profanation. It keeps us holy. It keeps us unspotted from the world. There's a holiness, loyalty to the weak and the poor in the covenant. There's a holiness separation from the world and all its filth. That's what true religion, pure religion, undefiled religion, useful religion does. It might not seem useful, but the more you grow in wisdom, the more you will see that that is useful and seeking to ally yourself to the powerful filthy is useless and harmful. 
Pure and undefiled religion is to resist the temptation of temporal gain and to do one's duty at cost. It is to maintain holiness from the world, the flesh, and the devil. So those things being laid side by side, we have liberty. We have liberty. It allows us to do the glorious work of pure and undefiled religion. That's what the Word of God empowers us to do. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights?